take our Christmas break. So just a reminder, next Wednesday, a week from today, is our last lesson of 2022. And then we come back the second Wednesday of January. So we are off for three Wednesdays before we get back together in the new year. And so we're going to end next week with David becoming king. And so we need to, well, I should say, David becoming king over all of Israel because he's kind of king today. He's sort of king-ish um, today. And so glad to be here as we are jumping into 2 Samuel today. We're going to look at the first four chapters of 2 Samuel. And just as a reminder, questions are great. We got a couple questions last week, which are, I actually think, two really great questions. So we're going to talk about those before we jump in today to today's lesson. And just a reminder that we've got all these lessons available on our website, stmichael.org slash rbs, or on our podcast. And so we hope that you will seize the opportunity to listen to all of those. Um, it seems like pretty much every week, at least one person tells me they've kind of discovered these lessons and they're going back to listen. And I feel so bad because it's like 150 hours at this point. And so it's a lot of time. It's a lot of time. Um, but if you've got friends, I just yesterday had someone say that they began Bible study this year. They had never been to a Bible study in their life. They're over 70. They love it. And so I think there are lots of people who have never thought that Bible study is quite their bag. And if you've got someone like that in your life, I'd love for you to invite them because I do think this is something that can be meaningful over time. And we're actually going to talk about some of the way in which we approach Bible study today because of one of the questions I got last week. And so let's have a prayer and we'll jump right in. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. God, we give you thanks for this holy season of Advent, and we ask your blessing upon us as we travel our, the way with you, preparing our hearts and minds to celebrate once again the birth of your Son. May each one of us be given strength for the journey, courage that we can address all of those ways in which we fail to be the people that you've called us to be and the ways in which we try to pick that up and be better. Be with our friends who need our healing touch or your healing touch today. Keep them ever mindful of your presence and help us to be your hands and feet of love. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> I should actually say, we're only a couple weeks away from Christmas, and so I hope you will take advantage of some of the things that we are doing, like this coming Sunday at 11. Someone asked me, okay, I'm going to say, someone asked me last week, when is the Nativity pageant? And I said, oh, it's on Sunday at 11. And they said, okay, then I'm going to come at 5.30 in the chapel. And I was like, no, come see our cute kids. Um, no, that's fine. I know that the nativity pageant's not everyone's favorite thing. Um, but if you do like seeing the delightful chaos of toddlers dressed as all kinds of animals and stars and all that stuff, that's happening at 11 on Sunday. And so join us there. Um, and then, of course, Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, they're coming. And so we hope that you will join us for those services. The schedule's been published in many places. It's all on the hallways and walls on our website. We're going to have services live streamed, and those are marked as well. So if you are out of town or if you've got family that want to join our worship, um, we hope that you will do all of that. It's going to be great fun. And the weather's going to be perfect. Just you wait. Okay. Let's jump in. So, scope of today's lesson, we've got David mourning the death of Saul and Jonathan. Then we've got David anointed as king. Yes, anointed again. And then the third section is David's kingship is challenged and challenged by people loyal to Saul. And so before we get into the lesson of the first four uh, chapters of 2 Samuel, 
a couple questions that I think are actually quite good for everyone. The first comes from John who says, doesn't David's division of the Amalekite spoils sound a lot like Jesus's parable about the payment of the vineyard workers? And that was so clever to notice that there's a lot of consistency between some of the stories of David and some of the stories that Jesus tells. So last week we discussed at the end of 1 Samuel, David is over and away from Saul and his crew. David is David left with his men and their families in order to stay safe from Saul's wrath. And so they create a base camp at Ziklag, and while they're trying to go curry favor in sanctuary with the Philistines, Amalekites come and sack their base camp at Ziklag, steal a bunch of stuff and hurt the people. And so when they return to find this out, they chase after the Amalekites, they catch them, they basically destroy them, they get all of the spoils and they bring them back. And if you remember, only a portion of David's fighting force made it all the way to catch the Amalekites. When they bring the spoils back, they're the ones that think they get all the stuff. But David says, no, whatever we capture, regardless of who was there fighting, everybody gets the benefit. And then that becomes something that carries on in the Israelite um, consciousness and legal tradition from that point. Whether that's true or not, it doesn't matter. So David sets up an ideal in which the people who can go do the work are the people who get the goods for everyone. And so everyone benefits, all boats rise in a sense. So this, it was noted that it sounds similar to what Jesus talks about with the vineyard workers. And so a reminder of that parable is a man goes out to get people to work in his vineyard and he picks up a crew in the morning and then he picks up more and then he picks up more and he picks up more. And so some group, part of the group working in the vineyard only work an hour and others have worked the entire day and then everywhere in between. And at the end of the day, the vineyard owner pays everyone the same, regardless of how much they work. And the people who started at the beginning say, wait a minute, we worked a lot longer than these people, don't we deserve more? And the vineyard owner says, I gave you what I promised. For Jesus, this story becomes indicative of God's kingdom, God's economy. We talk occasionally in church that God's economy is not the world's economy. God's grace is offered to everyone equally. And so sort of like what we talked about last week, regardless of when, a person turns or returns to God, grace is total and complete. It doesn't matter if you've been good your whole life or if you make a choice at the very end of a bad life, grace is complete. So then those of us who've kind of done the right stuff for a long time can occasionally feel like we deserve more, we're owed more, and that's simply not the way that Jesus establishes God's kingdom. David is doing something that is absolutely similar. It is not the same, so I don't want to say it is the same, but there is this precedent within Judaism at this time that everyone gets cared for, whether one can earn it or not, one can fight or not. The entire community takes care of each other. We often, I think that for 21st century Christians, especially Christians in the West in America, we don't take Jesus at face value often because essentially 
we want Jesus to say or mean or do certain things that are convenient for what we want the world to be like. But when you really take Jesus at face value, Jesus says everything belongs to everyone, everyone takes care of everyone, God loves everyone, everyone's welcome in God's kingdom. That's it. Um, it's just that simple. And he doesn't really go into why and who and when and what do they have to do to earn it. There's no earning, there's no judgment, there's no tiered system. And what we see in the first century with, in the Acts of the Apostles is the expectation that when one becomes Christian, everything one has becomes part of the entire community of Christians. And so we don't often like to say it, but Jesus really did mean for everything to belong to everyone else. So do not challenge me with political whatever. Um, we just, that's it, that's Jesus. So you deal with Jesus, don't, don't deal with me. Um, and so <laughs> this is gonna be important for the second question. So that's kind of the first question. Second question comes from Liz, and it's a great question. She asks, what is the hermeneutic, we're gonna talk about what that means, what's the hermeneutic we're using in this Bible study? Because I just learned this term, which I think is great, I love that. And it seems like we're using something like the perspective of the storyteller. Okay, so I've got a few good words for you. Hermeneutic is one, and if I tell you how to spell it, you'll probably spell it wrong anyway later, it doesn't matter. Just spell it out, it sounds good. Hermeneutic, then we've got exegesis and eisegesis. So we're going to talk about these three, these three terms. A hermeneutic is a philosophical approach to interpreting something written, and it's almost entirely about biblical interpretation. It usually is not used for other philosophical endeavors. It's pretty much one of those only biblical words. So a hermeneutic is the philosophical approach to how one interprets the Bible. Now I want to talk about the difference between exegesis and eisegesis. Exegesis is when one goes into the text and tries to figure out what the text can teach us. The hermeneutical approach to exegesis is very important because your philosophical approach to interpretation is how, is what really determines where your exegesis or your discovery lands. Does that make sense? Yes. What is important about exegesis versus eisegesis is that exegesis is meant to be something quite faithful to the text. Regardless of your philosophical approach to the interpretation, you are going into the text to try and discover something that the text is telling you. However, too often what Christian leaders mostly do is they approach the text with eisegesis, eisegetical eyes, and that is they want the text to say something. They want the text to support their worldview. They want the text to defend against whatever something someone else is challenging them. And so they go into the text and they make the text fit whatever they see as the point of the text in the world. That is probably what is happening when you, me, we, hear a Christian person say, well, the Bible says X, Y, and Z, and they pull some half verse out to defend it, and you think, that just doesn't sound right. Now, you might not be able to articulate a thorough defense by pulling other verses out of the Bible in other places, but you just know that's not quite right. That issue right there is you, as an Episcopalian, likely leaning more into something that is exegetical 
versus something that is eisegetical. So do we understand going into the text to discover something that teaches us versus taking whatever we want and then finding something in the text to prove it? That's the difference. Now I want to go back to hermeneutic. The hermeneutics of exegesis is very important because it's the philosophy one uses when we approach a literary analysis of the Bible. There are essentially four major branches of biblical hermeneutics that exist kind of throughout Christian history. The first is a literal interpretation. Literal can mean quite literally literal, or literal can mean something a bit more generous, which is essentially it means that we take the text at face value. Like the thing that we're talking about is true. I really subscribe mostly, I know you're gonna say, what are you talking about? I really subscribe mostly to a literal hermeneutic. I am not a literalist when it comes to scripture, but I do start from what is broadly literal in the sense that the Bible is telling us something true and we can take something true out of every story. That's the way I pretty much approach it. However, there are other ways to approach um, with a hermeneutical perspective. The second most common is a moral interpretation. We see that very often when it comes to Jesus's parables. What's the moral of the story? Well, that is very common in particularly kind of Roman Catholic, Orthodox, Episcopal circles. You may hear lots of priests, I don't tend to do this, but a lot of Episcopal priests tend to approach the moral of a story, and then they focus on the moral. I had one professor say, to, uh, say once that most preachers preach what Jesus preached. They don't preach Jesus. And I think that that's a moral approach to interpreting scripture. One would be more interested in the story being told rather than the person of Jesus who tells the story. And that's typically within a gospel context. Obviously, we're not doing that in 2 Samuel because Jesus is not there yet. Third, we've got an allegorical interpretation, and that's exactly what it means. It essentially means that whatever you see in the Bible is not meant to be about what it says. It's meant to be about something behind it. And so everything would then be interpreted as an allegory where we don't really care for or mind what is actually present in the story as a literary object, but rather it's pointing to something different. So what's behind the story that's being told in the Bible? There's nothing wrong with that. It's almost like a paraphrase. When we talk about things like the message, it's great to go and look at a paraphrase or to go and look at someone's um, meaning behind a story in the Bible. But in this case, for our Bible study, we don't really do that because I really want you all to be able to do that on your own. I want to look at what is actually the story, chapter by chapter. Then if you want to go and draw conclusions that go beyond the story, great. That's part of your work as a disciple is know what's there first, then you can build on that. It's kind of like what is actually in the story, the literal, is the foundation of the house, but the foundation's not the house. You've got to put a whole lot more up above the foundation, but if you don't have a good foundation, 
your house is gonna fall apart. Fourth, and this is one that is not terribly common, is, and this is a good word, anagogical, which really just means mystical. And so an anagogical interpretation or an anagogical approach would always focus on the mysticism of a story. That's difficult in a lot of the Bible because a lot of the Bible, like First and Second Samuel, is really presented as a historic narrative. But there are plenty of other places, I mean, think Revelation, where you get a ton of mysticism. And the mystical interpretation is really the point of what a lot of people bring. And so there are scholars throughout time who essentially ignore a lot of the Bible because they don't find that helpful. They really find only the mystical sections helpful to interpret what God's doing. So those four major branches are really the approach, the common hermeneutical approaches to Bible study. So just to be clear, I tend to lean into the literal even though I do not think scripture is literal. You, we've, you've heard me say in here that I want us to think literately about the, about the Bible, not literally. But to be literate about the Bible does mean that we take it at face value. It is the story being told, and we need to know what that story is. That's what we're doing in here. That's not always what I do as a preacher. It's not always what we would do in other forms of study, but in RBS, we're really trying to start from a what is the story, get it clean, and then we can do deeper, farther, more impactful later. Okay, any questions about all that? You got some good words today. No follow-up? I love nerd moments, so thank you for that. Okay, let's get into today's four chapters. So we are shifting now from 1 Samuel to 2 Samuel. I think I said at one point in here before, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel is really Saul's kingship, David's kingship, even though David's very present in 1 Samuel. That's really the macro idea of these two chapters, and they're really sort of like season one and season two of a TV show. And so you get in the first few verses of 2 Samuel, it's almost like last season. Um, and so that's really how it's set up. Um, it, I've had questions before, why the different chapters? I mean, it really is kind of one story. And I addressed this when, back, way back when we studied Luke and Acts. It essentially comes down to the materials that writers used to tell the stories, the literal stuff that were, were used to write was typically uh, animal skin, maybe some kind of parchment-like product, and they were only so big. So you could only take a single animal skin and make a scroll that was so big. And so typically, if you're gonna tell a big story, you may have to use two scrolls. And so as you are conceiving of what to write, it kind of makes sense you would write part one and part two. Scroll one, scroll two. And so that's what we get with Luke and Acts, that's what we get with First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. Mostly, that's about the limit of physical space that a person could write. Now, over time, that's refined. No one's going to start off just, you know, word one and finish a perfect scroll length. But when we look at the way in which they are bound, Luke and Acts are pretty close in length. First and Second Samuel, pretty close in length. So, as an editor would. Those stories are refined a bit to fit the physical limit of the product on which they were written. Good? 
it's it's not quite as sexy as many answers could be, but that's about what it is. So we go from 1 Samuel to 2 Samuel, and now we get the beginning of 2 Samuel with a bit of cleanup after Saul's death. So David, who has been over in Ziklag, away from Saul, Saul's fighting the Philistines, David's out there chasing the Amalekites, David returns to Ziklag with the spoils, and those were divided up evenly at the end of 1 Samuel. Well, at the beginning of 2 Samuel, David hears the news of Saul and Jonathan's death. So let's take a look at chapter 1 of 2 Samuel. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from defeating the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. On the third day, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. When he came to David, he fell to the ground and did obeisance. David said to him, Where have you come from? He said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. David said to him, How did things go? He answered, The army fled from the battle, but also many of the army fell and died, and Saul and his son Jonathan also died. Then David asked the young man who was reporting to him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan died? The young man reported to him, I happened to be on Mount Geboah, and there was Saul, leaning on his spear, while the chariots and the horsemen drew close to him. When he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me. I answered, Here, sir. And he said to me, Who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. Which you might say, What? Okay, we'll talk about that in a minute. He said to me, Come, stand over me and kill me, for convulsions have seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood over him and killed him, for I knew that he could not live after he had fallen. I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and all the men who were with him did the same. They mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for his son Jonathan, and for the army of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. David said to the young man who had reported to him, Where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a resident alien, an Amalekite. David said to him, Were you not afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Come here and strike him down. So he struck him down and he died. David said to him, Your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. And we'll stop there. Um, just to, you know, not to spoil anything, but there's going to be a lot of dying in these first few chapters. Um, and so we begin here. Saul fell on his sword, even though here it says spear. We're told in 1 Samuel, Saul dies. Now in 2 Samuel, we're told essentially Saul wasn't quite all the way dead, but was in the process of dying and found this Amalekite who then cut his head off and took his stuff. Now, one might say, why an Amalekite? And where was the Amalekite? And wasn't David fighting the Amalekites who came? Okay, so our commentary offers this. Given God's hostility to Amalek, which we've already discussed, how does Saul come to have Amalekites in his army? That is a weird issue. And given that Saul annihilated the Amalekites back in 1 Samuel chapter 15, how does Saul come to have any Amalekites left for his army? And for that matter, how come there are enough Amalekites left to go and capture Ziklag while David and his crew are over with the Philistines. This is another indication that we should not be too literal in understanding the Old Testament statements about how people come and go. So essentially what 
our commentary is saying is that Amalekite may not be literal, or what we've already discussed many times, there are a couple different stories about things happen, about how things happen, that are simply just stacked on top of each other. They're not edited together, they're not woven with any intentionality, they're just put together like pearls. And we get one version of Saul's death at the end of 1 Samuel, we get a second version of Saul's death at the beginning of 2 Samuel. It could be that. It could also be that David is somehow maybe righteous in his anger toward this Amalekite because David has somewhat interpreted that this Amalekite took advantage of Saul's death. So could it also be that Saul actually did die, but this Amalekite came across Saul's body and decided he might be able to curry some favor with the other guy who seems very strong and likely to become a leader, if not king himself. And so this Amalekite grabs the armor that belonged to Saul and then takes it to David and proves to David what with Saul's head, I don't know. And so we've got an interesting situation here. The commentary also states that David comes to have Saul's stuff. And this might be a way for David to have become owner of Saul's stuff without David doing anything wrong against Saul himself. And in fact, David, in a sense, almost defends Saul's honor by having this Amalekite executed for his, I don't know, dishonorable treatment of Saul's body in some way. Um, it, it seems unclear. But somehow David comes across Saul's stuff. And this story might clean up a little bit of what could have been some people's concern about David potentially doing something wrong against Saul. All right. There's another part of this passage. Remember, if you've got a question, ask. Um, there's another part of this passage that then becomes important, and that is we will see that David is anointed again with by the people of Judah, and we're going to get there. The anointing of the people is important because a king is essentially duly uh, marked for leadership, once by God and then once by the people's consent. We see this in royal families all over the world. We will see this played out liturgically or ceremonially when the new king is crowned in the United Kingdom. So when Charles becomes king, if you watch that ceremony, which I know you, I know some of you, you're Anglophiles, you're going to. So when you watch that ceremony, listen, there will be a moment in that service where God, like Charles will be anointed by God as represented by the Archbishop of Canterbury. And then the people will consent to Charles as their king. You get these both and moments. One is a sacred anointing, and then one is essentially like a political consent. Both are important, even if ceremonial. It's not as if the people of the United Kingdom vote on this or something, but it's said that that is what is happening in that moment in order to validate the kingship. So we're going to jump into the second section now, which is that anointing. Any questions about the first section when it comes to I guess, the end of Saul and David's response. All right. 
Let's look at chapter 2. We know that David has been anointed multiple times already, but why not have another? And so the twofold anointing is important, and this is kind of an anointing that fills in the gap of the people's voice as consent for David's kingship. So let's look at chapter 2, the first couple verses. After this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, To which shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. So David went up there, along with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nebel of Carmel. <coughs> David brought up the men who were with him, every one of his household, and they settled in the towns of Hebron. Then the people of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. So as noted, we've got this shift from Saul to David, and we know in the story that David has been God's chosen, God's anointed for a while. I mean, years and years. David was a child when he was anointed. He is no longer a child. But what we have not gotten is the people's consent. David has been extremely faithful. Honestly, David has been faithful to Saul in almost every way. David has consented to Saul in almost every way with the one exception that David did not want Saul to kill him. Okay, so in that one way, David did not agree with Saul or follow Saul's lead. But in pretty much every other way, David really treated Saul as the right king, even though David knew that he had been anointed to be king. And so, in a sense, David has respected the crown, so to speak, in a very literal way. Now that Saul has died, even though David was torn up about it, and David kind of got back at a person who maybe killed Saul, we don't know, in one version at least, David is now cleared to become king. And so David says to God, is this the time? And if it's the time, where should I go? Up to Judah? Okay. And then to what town in Judah? David is, if we recall, from the tribe of Judah. And so David would naturally go back to his people to be validated as the king. So he's anointed by God. Now he needs the people's consent. So who people is he going to? His people. And so he goes to his people in the tribe of Judah. And so now we get this moment where David is anointed by the people and becomes, his path to the kingship becomes clear. Now, what I want to note is that there is a conflict, so to speak, about David's legitimacy for the kingship. And we're gonna to get to that section next. But I simply wanna note, David is now anointed by the people to be king and he will be king over Judah for a short period of time. Any questions about that anointing? Because this little section, this is small. I almost just folded in the first one, but yeah. Any questions about what is happening with the action of the story so far? All right, so for the rest of the time, we're gonna look at chapters, really two, three, and four altogether. So as one might expect, when a king dies, people may come in to claim the kingship next. And we noted weeks ago that when David was anointed, there was a very interesting dynamic that happened 
because Saul's son should expect to be the next king. Well, Saul's oldest son, Jonathan, was immediately very supportive of David. And of course, Jonathan died on the field of battle with his father, Saul. So Jonathan is not going to claim the throne. He's dead. But Saul had other sons. And so what we see here is that as David is kind of off, becoming anointed by his tribe, the Judahites, we've got loyal people to Saul who are looking for Saul's lineage to be crowned in his place. In particular, Saul's army commander, Abner, wants one of Saul's son, Ishbaal, to become the next king after his father, Saul. And so Abner takes Ishbaal over to Gilead and names him king, which makes total sense. Saul was king, so now Saul's next oldest son, still living son, is named king in his place. But this goes against what we know is God's intention. And, of course, the, there's one group of people, Israelites over here, the Judahites, who want David, and now this other group over here, who were loyal to Saul, want Ishbal. Both are named king, but over two different groups. What is, let's read just a little bit before we keep going. So chapter 2, verse 8. Let's just read a few verses. So David's been named king over Judah. Chapter 2, verse 8 says, But Abner, son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, had taken Ishbal, son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. He made him king over Gilead, the Asherites, Jezreel, Ephraim, Benjamin, and over all Israel. Ishbal, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David. The time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. So this is a period of time where there are two kings. We've got David over here in Judah, and we've got Ishbal over here in Israel. Now, who notices something odd? There isn't really a single kingdom of Israel yet. However, we've got two kings named for two clear groups, Israel and Judah. When do we hear that there are two clear groups of Israelites, one in Israel and one in Judah? You remember? Mm -mm -mm. After David unifies the kingdom and Solomon comes after David as king, the entire unified kingdom of Israel divides in half. And we get the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel is sacked by the Assyrians and taken into exile. The Babylonians take over from the Assyrians and they come farther south to sack the kingdom of Judah and take them into exile. And the exile, capital E exile, is when the Babylonians take the kingdom of Judah into exile. The people who are there for 70 years in exile in Babylon ultimately are freed by the Persians who sacked the Babylonian empire and they return to Jerusalem to rebuild the second temple. Who's writing the story? Those Israelites, those Jews, they are from the kingdom of Judah, and they come back to reestablish the temple, and that's the second temple that Jesus went to, and they create all of the legal tradition 
into which Jesus comes, and they are the ones that finalize the story. And so what is happening here? If we note, David, the true king, is king of Judah. The other king, Ishbal, is king of Israel. At the time that David and Ishbal are living, there are no two kingdoms of Israel and Judah, but the storytellers who are writing the story remember two kingdoms, and they remember their kingdom of Judah, and so David becomes their king, and Ishbal becomes the other people's king. Does that make sense? So here's one of those moments where they tell the story that they know in a way that benefits them, but is historically inaccurate. And so this is one of those true, not historical moments. All right, so now let's look at some of the collateral damage around David becoming king. He's gonna be king, God anoints him to be king, but God does not make a clear path for him to become king. And instead, it is a big, hot mess. And so let's first look at Abner. Abner, the commander of Saul's army, remains loyal to Ishbal until the tide begins to turn. And it looks like Ishbal is going to lose. Then Abner, who is obviously politically savvy, decides that he wants to bet on the right horse. And so he defects to David. So let's look at chapter 3. I'm going to jump around a little bit because there are sections of this that don't really matter. Are important, but don't really matter today. Okay, chapter 3, verse 1. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. Now jump to verse 12. Abner sent messages, messengers to David at Hebron, saying, To whom does the land belong? Make your covenant with me, and I will give you my support to bring all Israel over to you. Now jump to verse 17. Abner sent word to the elders of Israel, saying, For some time past, you've been seeking David as king over you. Now then, bring it about. For the Lord has promised David, Through my servant David I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from all their enemies. Abner also spoke directly to the Benjaminites. Then Abner went to tell David at Hebron all that Israel and the whole house of Benjamin were ready to do. When Abner came with 20 men to David at Hebron, David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. Abner said to David, Let me go and rally all Israel to my lord the king, in order that they may make a covenant with you, and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David dismissed Abner, and he went away in peace. We'll pause there. Abner has essentially become a little ace in David's pocket. Abner controls, more or less, the military of Israel, who has been loyal to Saul's son, Ishbal. But Abner sees that David's men are growing in strength, David's authority is growing in strength, and so the way the story is told, Abner then goes to David and strikes a bargain. If Abner can come to work for David, so essentially be safe, then Abner's going to go tell all his people that they should be under David, not Ishbal. I think over time we've seen this in the modern world. I mean, there are so many times we've seen coups, I mean, especially South America, the Middle East, and Africa, where you've got the military 
does not wish to follow a particular political leader. And so the commander of, a, of the military essentially overthrows the political leader and they prop up a replacement political leader who is going to do whatever the military wants. And there are many countries, I mean, you know, Egypt and Colombia and places like that where that happens regularly. I mean, it's happened multiple times. Or when a political leader comes to power who is new, there's general concern about whether or not the military will submit to that leader. Because kinda, if you've got a military commander and the military is loyal to the commander, it's often the case that the military goes with whomever the commander wants to go with. That's one of the remarkable things about you know, American democracies. You get this transfer of power most of the time and you get a clear way from one person to the next where the military submits to the will of the people, even though the military could, and we've seen it in other countries, kind of do whatever they want. Part of what we see here is Abner being sly and politically savvy, but it doesn't necessarily work for him because Abner's also been a guy who's killed people who are loyal to David. And so let's remember that Abner's story is such that back in 1 Samuel, um, I'm sorry, back in 2 Samuel chapter 2, we didn't read it. Abner is pursued by Asahel, who is Joab's brother. Now, Asahel is Joab, I'm sorry, I said that already. Joab is the commander of David's army. So you've got David's commander, Joab, and you've got Ishbaal's commander, Abner. Well, Joab sends his brother with a unit to go after Abner. They track him down, but Abner kills Asahel. So Abner, as the commander of Ishbaal's army, has killed the brother of the commander of David's army. So perhaps David's general, Joab, is not going to be so happy with David striking a deal with Ishbaal's general, Abner. So look at chapter 3, verse 22. Chapter 3, verse 22 picks up right where we left off. Just then, the servants of David arrived with Joab from a raid, bringing much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David at Hebron, for David had dismissed him, and he had gone away in peace. When Joab and all the army that was with him came, it was told Joab, Abner, son of Ner, came to the king, and he, was and he has dismissed him, and he has gone away in peace. Then Joab went to the king and said, What have you done? Abner came to you. Why did you dismiss him so that he got away? You know that Abner, son of Ner, came to deceive you and to learn your comings and goings and to learn all that you are doing. When Joab came out from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the cistern of Surah, but David did not know about it. When Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside in the gateway to speak with him privately, and there he stabbed him in the stomach. So he died for shedding the blood of Asahel, Joab's brother. Afterward, when David heard of it, he said, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner, son of Ner. May the guilt fall on the head of Joab and, all, and on all his father's house. And may the house of Joab never be without one who has a discharge or who is leprous or who holds a spindle or who falls by the sword or who lacks food. So Joab and his brother Abishai murdered Abner because he had killed their brother Asahel in the battle of Gibeon. Then David said to Joab, and to all the people who were with him, tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and mourn over Abner 
And King David followed the buyer. They buried Abner at Hebron. The king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner, and all the people wept. So, we'll pause there. What is interesting to note here is that it might appear to us, if we were in David's shoes, Joab's done a thing against our wishes. David's over here trying to make a political ally to bring in the rest of Israel, and Joab takes a personal vengeance out against Abner. So it kind of ruins David's plans to use Abner as a means of gathering all of the political capital that Abner could bring to him. One might think Joab did something wrong, and David wouldn't hang around with Joab, would not keep him in leadership, but Joab remains the leader of David's army his entire life. And Joab will again and again do stuff against David's will. We may say or ask, why is David keeping Joab around? But maybe we can ask a better question. Why is the storyteller constructing a story about Joab if Joab is constantly doing things that go against David's will? To me, my interpretation of this is that Joab is the foil for David being the wonderful, great king. David's kingship, David's reign, is not without violence and without a lot of political maneuvers and with a lot of opportunities for people to criticize David as less than a righteous leader. But if, David's story is told in such a way that it's David's people doing the bad stuff, not David. David remains pretty clean of what happens, even though he's the king and he's responsible. We can draw clear lines that keep David clean and make David's people dirty. And that's going to happen over and over and over again. And as if, to reiterate that idea, whenever one of David's foes or political rivals falls, we get a very similar repetitive loop of David tearing his clothes and mourning and writing a song about them. It happens over and over and over again. We saw that with Saul. David, I mean, we can imagine that Saul is essentially a rival of David's, but Saul dies in battle. And David rips his clothes and mourns and buries him well and writes a song about him. We get Abner, who is in charge of his rival's army, who is killed in a way that is, I mean, not to say that killing anyone is okay, but I sympathize with Joab wanting to get back at the guy who killed his brother, even if he shouldn't have. And yet, David tears his clothes and mourns for Abner and writes a song about him. And so we get this same thing over and over again. You want to see it again? Let's go to chapter 4. All right. First, collateral damage, you have Abner. But Abner worked for Ishbal. And so we still have another king. Ishbal is still king of Israel. David's grown in his authority and his power, and Ishbal has decreased, but there are still two kings. That cannot be. Let's look at chapter 4. When Saul's son Ishbel heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed, and all Israel was dismayed. Saul's son had two captains of raiding bands. The name of one was Bena, 
and the name of the other was Rechab. Jump to verse 5. Rechab and Bena set out, and about the heat of the day, they came to the house of Ishbel while he was taking his noonday rest. They came inside the house as though to take wheat, and they struck him in the stomach. Then Rechab and his brother Bena escaped. Now they had come into the house while he was laying on his couch in his bedchamber. They attacked him, killed him, and beheaded him. Then they took his head and traveled by way of the Arabah all night long. They brought the head of Ishbel to David at Hebron and said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbel, son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my lord the king this day on Saul and on his offspring. David answered Rechab and his brother Benan, the sons of Reman and Bethorite. As the Lord lives, who, was re who has redeemed my life out of every adversity, when the one who told me, see, Saul is dead, thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag. This was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more then, when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his bed, in his own house? And now, shall I not require his blood at your hand and destroy you from this earth? So David commanded the young men, and they killed them. They cut off their hands and feet and hung their bodies beside the pool at Hebron. But the head of Ishbael they took and buried in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. Yeah. So, this is one of those moments where someone else thought they would be clever. Ishmael's fallen apart. His commander Abner has gone to defect to David and in his defection been killed by Joab. So now we've got these other two that are sort of like commanders of smaller units that likely worked for Abner, were loyal to Abner. They see the writing on the wall. David's on his way up. Ishmael's on his way down. So they try to curry favor with David by going and assassinating Ishbael, who was their king, and then bringing Ishbael's head to David to say, you should be king, we are loyal to you, look what we did for you to try and curry favor with David. David again says to these people, this is not how you're supposed to act. You should not do this. You should not kill a righteous person, especially not a righteous person in his bed. And so David has them executed in a sense, out of righteousness, because they did something horribly wrong. In, in a way, they're almost executed for having committed murder. David now mourns the death of Ishmael, writes a little song, and then buries Ishmael with Abner. And so David comes out after these first four chapters looking like a pretty righteous person. He's decent, he's not perfect, He's made some mistakes, but he has a code. David is living by a particular code. If someone's fighting you in battle on a battlefield, then you win if you can. I mean, it's everyone's for themselves. But when you're not having a fight, when you're not battling each other, there's sort of a code one lives by. Ishbel may have been king and a rival of David's, but David's not going to kill Ishbel. David wants to become king in a righteous way. And so when these people undermine David's desire to do so righteously, David gets upset and he tries to make things right by then executing them. We can talk about how that's not, you know, two wrongs don't make a right all day long, but at least we can understand that the way David's character is being constructed here is that he becomes king cleanly. David is not undermining his rivals. David is not sneaking into bedchambers and killing the other king. David is trying to be patient 
and wait his, him out. David could, one could argue, be loyal to God, knowing that God's plan is for David to be king. David is, in a sense, not concerned about how long that takes. That's God's time. David's not trying to rush God. David knows God said, you're going to be king. And so David's being patient to wait for the moment in which God's intention will be fulfilled. At this point, other characters have taken it upon themselves to do things that David would not do, but all of the results of those moments cause David to now be the sole leader left. And so next week, in our last study before Christmas, David finally becomes king over all of Israel. And we get to the phase that really gives us a glimpse as to who the Messiah is promised to be in the future. Any questions or comments before we break for the day? I'm early. Yes, sir. I missed your question. What? You're talking about those two raiders? I don't think their heads were taken off. Um, they were killed and they cut off their hands and feet. So I think they still had their heads. They cut off, what, what he's saying is, the head of Ishbaal that the raiders brought to David is buried with Abner. So I think they're hung by their heads without their hands and feet. That's lovely. It's not gruesome enough. And everybody gets stabbed in the stomach. What is that about? I've never understood. If you intend to cut off someone's head, can't that just be the starting point? Um, I mean, I guess one fights less if you've stabbed them in the stomach. Um, but it does seem to be just extra gruesome. Like, just go for the throat first, because that's like halfway to cutting off their head. Um, not that I ever thought about it, but there you go. <laughs> Any other questions or comments? Well, on that happy note, I hope you have a wonderful day. I'll see you next week. Bye.